inside Lion Dyke. One car against the wall, and it continues to slide. It's Paul Tracy. Uh, Paul, the rookie, the young rookie racing for the Penske team, having his first outing in a major race. See Tracy on the left there. There was so much hope for this young man, and he's against the wall here on the third lap of this race. And now for Dinner with Racers, presented by Continental Tire. With your hosts, Ryan Eversley and Sean Heckman. Placeholder Radio. Dinner with Racers. Hey, Ryan. Hey, Sean. Hey, uh, you know we got that uh, that TV show up on the Motor Trend? We sure do, don't we? You go to that uh, Motor Trend YouTube channel, I believe it is um, YouTube.com. Well, I think you, you can Google Google. Go to Google.com. And then once you Google Google, you Google Motor Trend.com slash YouTube? Yes. Okay. Yeah, go to yeah. Motor Trend YouTube. And then once you're in YouTube, look up Dinner with Racers yeah. Motor Trend. Yeah. On that, uh, on that Motor Trend YouTube or Motor Trend Plus, the streaming service, yeah. uh, we got some of them Dinner with Racers TV shows. We got them sweet shows. And that is what this podcast is. This is longer form, less edited, not completely unedited versions of the very things you see on that TV show. So, uh, hey, Ryan, there's a two-part special up on that Motor Trend. That's right. We went and hung out with Paul Tracy, the one and only PT. In his uh, hometown over there in Scottsdale, Arizona. And uh, when did we decide to go do this? In uh, June. When it was hotter than hell. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know how hot it was. At one point, 115 degrees. Yeah. They literally canceled flights <laughs> because planes couldn't land <laughs> on that true. tarmac. That's and true. And we're like, let's carry a camera. Yeah. On the way back from uh, from Arizona to, to your house in California, remember the MDX, like the, the dash shut off because it got so hot. Yeah. yeah. Couldn't do like, it. Uh, yeah. That's a brand new car. So yeah. that's when we decided to go carry a lot of camera equipment and hang out with Paul Tracy. So if you're a fan of our podcast, you know that we did a long-form podcast with PT back in 2017. Um, this does have a lot of overlap, but we just wanted to put out something that was sort of a longer-form version of what we did. The video series, if you go on to that, uh, that Motor Trend, it's a series of dinners with Paul. It's a little bit untraditional from other episodes we've done, which is how we like to be. Uh, it's, it's not a documentary. It's literally just a series of dinners kind of telling different stories to get behind the scenes of how PT is the way he is. So uh, it's a two-parter. Uh, the first part is all about his racing stories, how he made it to Penske, how he broke into Indy cars to begin with, how he got fired, his Indy 500 controversies, uh, how his career ended. It's all the racing stuff. And then part two, which is the one that I'm uh, particularly akin to, is, uh, well, what's that all about, right? That's more about his personal life and uh, what makes the man the man. And so I think when we when we first sat down with him a couple of years back, we saw a different side that most people do. And we, we were able to uncover that a little bit, but we wanted to take a deeper dive, really get to the root of who Paul Tracy was. So we traveled to Canada. We went to Arizona. We really wanted to make sure we told his story properly. And uh, I think we did a good job. Thank you. <laughs> so we literally had four different dinners to get to know Paul. We sat down with Paul. We sat down with Paul and his partner, Lisa. Uh, we sat down with Paul and all of his friends in Scottsdale. And then we went out to Canada and had, uh, had uh, lunch with his uh, mom and sister. So we got a pretty good rounded group of opinions on Paul and, and his background and what he's like beyond what you maybe see on social media. And, uh, and this is our first one. This is just Paul in long form interviews. Uh, Ryan, anything we're saying? Uh, Continental Tire sponsored this show. There are no restaurants worth mentioning because... Catch we ate in 
Paul's house in Scottsdale, and I think Lisa took care of the food. And hey, before we get over to uh, listening to some uh, less edited versions of the, the Paul Tracy episode, hey, you know what would go a long way beyond just simply watching them YouTubes, Ryan? I would say maybe writing a little comment. Maybe maybe hitting that, smashing that like button. Uh, yeah, and uh, just let, the, are we now the smash? The I think like we're button smacking. Here. Destroy that like button. Oh, yeah. But seriously, uh, <laughs> th- th- we're not we're not being funny or cute. Like the comments really do go a long way, especially comments that show you're a human. Yeah, yeah, like, like you're a real person. Yeah, not just like hey, nice vid. Like, yeah, cool vid. The production was really good. Yeah, maybe actually acknowledge the contents. Uh, the LOLs. People that make the show. Like that stuff goes legitimately goes a long way with folks like Motor Trend and Continental to really know that this is actually working and that you want us to do more of this. So that's it. Take it away, PT. Meow. So we're sitting here last uh last meal we're gonna have with you on this trip. What were you uh what were you most embarrassed by last night with the group dinner? Uh I wasn't really embarrassed by, by anything last night. I think I was actually pleasantly surprised that everybody <laughs> had, had something nice to say about me. Because, you know, when you're around your friends and you don't really talk like that, you know, it's right. not you're not really in that kind of a Forum you're not you're sitting there like, hey, what do you think of me? Talking about, yeah, what, <laughs> what, what do you really think of of me? Tell me know? more about me. Yeah, because yeah. most of them would say you're you're you're. <laughs> right, right, <laughs> right. Yeah. But or they so say stop was, being uh, weird. It was yeah. very, it was very nice to hear hear those kind words. Yeah, you know. So we thought we'd do something a little different than we normally do for our TV show, where we figured we would just come to your house and hang out and yeah. see what happens. We didn't, we didn't, we have no agenda. We have no idea of what's going to happen or why we're doing this. When we called you to do this, why why were you okay with us hanging out with you for a few days? Well, I've worked with you guys in the past. Uh, I, I thought it was good for me. The dinner with Racers podcast was, was good. Um, the feedback from it was good. It was positive. I've listened to other podcasts, and they're all pretty entertaining. And when you told me about this concept of, you know, filming and TV, I'm like, okay, I haven't done that in a while. I haven't really ever done a documentary on me. And, you know, the biggest the biggest thing was the timing and, and, and you know, with SRX starting, you know, I've been pretty busy just trying to get ready for that. I mean, relatively speaking, I, I, I would think... I'm not very busy compared to your guys' lifestyle <laughs> right. of driving 50,000 miles and racing and trying to find sponsors and trying to yeah. do all of this. I'm, I'm far less busy than you guys are. Yeah, we're doing it wrong, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah no. you're, you're doing it right. Yeah. yeah. So the, we specifically chose to come out with you the, the week before the SRX debut because you do kind of have something that you're focused on. And what's interesting about this SRX deal is, like, it's a fun series. It's meant to bring a bunch of old legends out and, and have fun. But there's been no part of you that's overly casual about this. No, and nobody else is. I mean, they try to make it out to be fun, but once you get in the race car, it's like the the whole concept of fun. This is for fun. Yeah. It goes out the window, becomes right. serious very, very quickly. Mm-hmm. And once you know, once everybody puts their helmet on, the competitive side of them comes out, and everybody that is in the series is a legitimate superstar driver. You know, it has won championships and won tons of races throughout their career. So you've, you know, those types of personalities mixed into the same 
realm of race car, you know, an equally prepared race car, you know, he's got the, we're all running each other hard. We didn't come in here with any sort of specific agenda of a, a way we wanted to frame you or a way we wanted to tell the story as much as just sort of see who the, the dude is. You know, there's, there's Paul Tracy, the race car driver that, that we've watched for decades. There's Paul Tracy, the, the TV commentator who, who was around for several years. There's Paul Tracy, the social media account, which is... <laughs> That's one way of putting it. Yeah, <laughs> which is a, a whole different character. And whatever you think of Paul Tracy and whatever uh, people's opinions may stem from, um, Tommy Kendall once explained it best that if you want to understand Paul Tracy, you need to understand his parents. And uh, so... so we get the impression that dad and mom were kind of unique characters. Yeah. No, my dad is uh, very was was very intense. He's getting pretty old now. My dad's ninety two. Right. So things are. Right. He's repeating himself a lot. You know, yeah. he's lived a lived a completely full life of of a right. lot of. He's done a lot of different things, and. But you grew up just outside of Toronto. Yeah, just outside Toronto. I grew up, and and my mom is eighty. My dad's ninety two, and. Uh, you know, my dad did everything for me to get me to to an Indy car. You know, the go karting and racing what was, and what was his business? My dad was a, a painting contractor, and him and my mom and my my dad moved to Canada, and I think I believe in '67 they got uh, green cards to move from England to 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 Canada. And my my dad's brothers moved over, and uh, they just my dad started a business painting business and. Uh, immediately went, you know, it was more than just painting houses. I mean, they started doing that, but it was, uh, they, my dad w quickly went for like the big jobs. Like big industrial kind of things. Big industrial type jobs. So yeah. the first big job that my dad had uh, after he moved to Canada and, and shortly after I was born was uh, painting the CN Tower in Toronto. Oh, that's a big job. Yeah, yeah. so like, he just bid the job and somehow got the job, and it was you know it was him and his two brothers were the only two employees of the company to paint the CN Tower. To paint the CN Tower, and yeah. that was like you know hanging off the CN Tower, climbing up there every day, and carrying paint up the up the up up that deal to to get up there. Yeah, you know it was like, uh, and this was in 19, I believe they started in 69, and it was completed in 72. And uh, that was his first big job. And then obviously after that, he just was, you know, just did kind of like big job paint, construct, paint construction. The Sky Dome was another big job when they built the Sky Dome in Toronto, the, the Toronto Airport, painting the Pearson Airport. And yeah. he did a lot of job, did a lot of work through the, the 80s and early 90s for General Motors. They were building plants nonstop in, in Ontario and in Oshawa and Innisville and yeah. So and they're all closed now. All those all those factories that are they kept building factories, building factories, building factories, and they're all closed now. So my dad literally was painted every inch of those places, like from the the ceiling to the walls to the floor to the paint lines where the where the uh, automated, you know, carts would run yeah. to the conveyors to the everything that needed paint 
on the inside of a GM factory. My dad, my dad's company did that. So yeah. I w it was literally, it was a full-time job. They was like, you know, it was, con you know, it was a constant, there was constant maintenance. So right. they, you know, they built the factory and it would, it would get painted. But then after that, it constantly needed to be yeah, kept up, kept yeah, up. Right, for so, sure. Yeah. yeah. So it's a good recurring source of business as <laughs> yes. well. Yeah. yeah. Is that, uh, isn't there like a famous photo of your dad on top of the CN Tower? Yeah. 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 Can we get a copy of that? And um, but when you, I mean, so you very, uh, Ryan says you very proudly showed us a photo. Let's just assume yeah. we have it. I mean, you very proudly showed us a photo of your dad hanging on the top of the CN Tower, which is like incredible. Yeah. But it sounds like he was biting off more than he could chew, but it helped him get ahead in life. Yeah. I mean, my dad's just a hard worker. You know, he, he would literally get up every morning at four in the morning, go to work and come home at nine o'clock at night. And that's just the way he, the way he was. You know? But to run that kind of business, that is what we call ready, fire, aim. Like I'm sure he took the, took the gig, not knowing how oh, he yeah. was going to pull this off, but you're going to do it. Yeah. And so there's kind <laughs> and, of, and, and probably sometimes not even make money at it. He was sure. just sometimes bid the job, bid, right. bid the job way lower than, than to get the account. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but that that sounds oddly like a guy that we know uh, across the table from us in terms of not afraid to take risks to make it work. True. Yeah, very true. Yeah, which is it's, which is kind of the opposite of, of how, you know, on the racetrack when the helmet's on, I'm not afraid to shoot for a gap or, to, or make a risky pass, take a chance. But I am I am the complete opposite in when it in terms of when it comes to like, you know, investing, investing in things and you know investing my money. I'm very very cautious and very conservative and scared to lose money. You know, the amount of times I've had people come and say to me, "Oh, invest in this, invest in that," and I tripled my money and I'm like, oh. "Yeah." When we pitched you, know, you on I'm, putting money into us, you were very <laughs> sketchy yeah. about what we could do. Yeah. But, but then you tried to sell us on you. Yeah. <laughs> but you can I'm just still trying to get a ride with you for with, in uh, the long races. It's not happening. It's man. still going. You're still gold. gold. You're still, gotta gold. Be silver. You're still oh. gold. It's not me. You got to take it up with him. Um, where, where does the dad? <clears throat> where does your dad's interest in motorsports come from? Because he was so passionate about supporting you getting getting to the next level. My dad started racing, actually motorcycles himself in England. Raced bikes when he was young. And I actually, when we, we, he moved to Canada, I actually started on, uh, on bikes and, you know, I had a mini bike and, and then it just, something happened. And I, I remember I started the bike in my garage one time and it took off across the floor <laughs> and <laughs> it ran into the garage door and busted the garage door you're dead meat yeah so I, I got the I got the bike the dirt the dirt bike taken away from me and I grounded from it and uh a few weeks later he came home with a go-kart and ironically the first go-kart that I ever had was uh there was a go-kart shop in Toronto it was actually right in downtown Toronto on Young Street and and it was uh, Scott Goodyear's dad owned the go kart shop, so he sold uh, he sold go karts and tires and engines. And my dad came home with this go kart that he bought from Good. It was called Goodyear's Cart Shop or something like that. And it was right downtown in, in, on Young Street. And uh, we went out to the track the first first weekend, and uh, I, I I believe I won my first race, but. It, and and then that was all I ever wanted to do after that was 
go out in the go-kart, right. you know, and were you competitive prior to that with other sports or no i mean yeah. I, no i was i played hockey as a canadian weird yeah yeah i played yeah. hockey i was a goalie and i played hockey up until i was 13 um nothing major i was never going to make it to the nhl but uh there just came a time once i turned 13 that year i was playing on a team and we weren't doing very well and i was the goalie and you know we always we were losing a lot and i you know the goalie gets all the blame and my <laughs> my dad came to me and said hey i you know you need to make a choice uh you got this invite to go race in new zealand for a month and actually go there with scott pruitt and lynn haddock who's a, a legendary name in the go-kart industry i think he's from chattanooga i think they they invited two two americans they were senior drivers scott pruitt and and i i got i got invited to go as a junior to race in new zealand and you're 13 yeah i was 13 and it and my dad said you want to play hockey or you want to go go kart racing because you can't you're gonna have to like not play on the team for right for a month and one is clearly not a career path yeah yeah and i actually like the go-karting a lot more than hockey because the hockey games when you're a kid were always at like you know practices at like 5 a.m on a sunday morning you know and then the game games were like seven in the morning i was i wasn't a fan of of that so but i chose the go-karting because that's what i loved the most and that's all i wanted to do once when you know you don't get a very long season of go-karting in canada this the tracks are open from you know, maybe May till till October, it gets starts getting too cold. So you've got a pretty short season of 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 racing, and uh, you know we got the opportunity to go to New Zealand over Christmas and New Year's, and uh, I went actually went. My dad didn't even go. My my mom took me there, and and uh, went over there and raced and had a good time and finished second in the championship there and. And then, then it was all racing after that. What age were you with your first go kart race? Uh, five. Oh wow! Yeah. You started at five yeah. years old. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, five five years old then, and with a full size go kart because they didn't have like cadet carts and oh, that's a lot carts. to handle. So these, yeah. We yeah. had these like big pieces of block wood on the pedals, like you know, like hose clamped to the pedals. Just and to then reach. The, yeah, just to reach the pedals. They have like a big like a two by four basically. <laughs> hose clamp to the throttle pedal, throttle pedal to bring it back to work, to your feet and everything. It's almost like uh, painting the CN Tower before you're probably ready to paint the CN yeah. Tower. Yeah. Were you competing against other five-year-olds? Yeah, yeah, that junior class, you could start. start. You okay. know, this, that, I remember telling you last night, this four-cycle club <laughs> that I went to had lots of juniors, and there was like, you know, A, B, C, D, yeah. E, you know, there was like 30 kids in each class. And the age, the, the age range was like, you could start at like five, and then you ran up until you were, until you were, fifteen or sixteen. Who wrenched? My dad. Yeah. Yeah, my dad did. Once, once I got older, once I, once I turned like you know, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, I, I did all the wrenching myself because my dad was super busy with business then, and and I, he was just hardly ever home. So my job was to have the go kart ready, ready to race. And if we weren't ready to race, then then uh, you know you're not going. we're not going. Right. You know, so uh, tires had to be mounted, cart had to be clean, everything had to be prepped, new chain, sprocket, whatever we needed to do. Uh, and uh, you know, I, even then, when I was like 14, 15 years old, I could rebuild my own motor. I could put a new piston and ring in it, and yeah. 
and do all that kind of stuff. Nothing like today where there's now the semis and yeah. people have yeah. like yeah. two it's mechanics totally, on a cart. It's yeah. totally different you now. You owned a go-kart brand for a while, didn't you? Yeah, like, yeah, but yeah. it's the thing now with go-karting is, is like, you know, you see these kids and they show up with their, you know, a semi truck and they've got like three mechanics and like catered food and, you know, literally we showed up with, with a go-kart in the back of my dad's pickup truck or, or the back of his car. At that time, my dad had a, my dad had a Rolls Royce. <laughs> And we used to stuff the go-kart into the back of, of the Rolls-Royce. Of a Rolls-Royce. Yeah, not like a truck not or sure a minivan. That, not sure that translates yeah. then. Yeah. You know, they've got catering now. We only had a Rolls-Royce back then. Yeah. But my dad's always been an English car fanatic. Right. So yep. he's always had Jaguars, but Heelys. He, but he would have rather put a, a go-kart and all the associated things to run it in the back of a Rolls-Royce and like buy an old pickup truck. Well, we had old pickup trucks, but he just preferred to drive the Rolls. My dad's, <laughs> like, my dad's yeah, very, my dad's very English. I, <laughs> yeah. I think I have a picture outside of uh-huh. one of my scrapbooks yeah. of me, you know, me and him working on the cart on the ground, and there's the Rolls Royces parked there in the background with the trunk yeah. open. So yeah. we literally like put the go kart in the back of the pickup, in the back of the Rolls, and then like the spare motor would be on the floor in the back yeah. seat, and, you know, <laughs> and spilling oil and yeah. yeah. I believe he's been banned from go-kart tracks in, yep. in his day. My dad got banned from, from coming to the races with, when I was with Penske. <laughs> what? They just, yeah. Oh, when you were an adult? Yeah, when I was an adult. Because <laughs> he, he would just get so wound up about everything and, like, just beat up know. people. Well, he would, you know, he would, like, say, he would kind of get on the engineers and the why isn't Paul going faster? What are you going to do with the car? Yeah, Penske. Like, they so, don't know what they're doing. Yeah, so... And this, this isn't like early days Penske. Yeah. This no, is we're already so, winning yeah. all the time Penske. Yeah, yeah. Penske told my dad, look, you're not, you can't come to the races anymore. you got to stay home. <laughs> well, well, that was a theme throughout your career, correct? Dad seemed like he got, in, got, you in a, uh, got himself in trouble quite a bit. I wouldn't say trouble, but just very passionate to see me do well. Yeah. You know? And it was never, never my fault. You know, there was, if if I wasn't running well, then it was something wrong with the team or the car. Yeah. According to your dad. Yeah. 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 Now, which is you... normal. Which is normal for dads. Normal for not, hockey dads, baseball yeah, dads. Oh, every, we call them little league dads. Yeah. Little yeah. league dads. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But not right. every dad gets banned from a go kart track, and yours did. Or Penske. Yeah. You'd be surprised. A lot. I think a lot do. How was dad with you losing? Uh, I mean, he was he was okay with me losing. Um, my dad was tougher on me than. My dad was tough on me because he he expected a lot from me. He expected me to, um, you know, I could win a race and he could find something that I did did wrong in the race. Well, why yeah. did you why did you make that mistake? But if I had a bad race and and did bad, he never came down on me if I did bad. But he'd never let your head get too big if you were doing well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. very true. So he was t- even if I won races, I could win a race by thirty seconds, and he could find something that I didn't do right. Yeah, you know, still you missed an apex once. Yeah, yeah. But if I had a bad race, he ne- would would never never come down on me hard. There was there was no point in my career where he was where he ever discouraged me from like, okay, this you're not good enough at all. You know, it was exactly it was exactly the opposite, really. I mean, he was had all the belief in me, probably more belief in me than pro- probably I had. You were mentioning that your dad. Uh would if you had a problem or, or you weren't going fast, it was never your fault. He would blame it on mechanics, engineers, or whatever it is. That even into the Penske era, right? Yeah. And yeah. were you 
aware enough to know that that might not be the case? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So you were like, so yeah, would, Dad, you're you know, right. I would, have to like, apo- no, I would have to make apologies to, to people. Just, oh, just don't pay attention to my dad. He's a little crazy. Yeah. You know. Said Paul Tracy. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. you know, but there's still a lot of there's still a lot of dads like that out there. Oh, yeah. You know? No question. Yeah. Still yeah. Tons He's of, not tons original of, in that, there's, that no, there's, there's still yeah. tons of racing dads out there that are are that way. I can I can think back in my career to a point where I I recognized I wanted to try to do this for a living, and I can also remember switching from thinking like oh this is kind of neat to be really neat to do this, and then believing that I'm going to make this happen like I'm going to get a career out of this. Do you have any memory like that? Do you remember when it was like okay I want to do this for my living and like did you have that you know belief that it was going to happen? Uh yeah I knew I knew right away once I started go kart racing and got serious about it. But th- that's that's what I wanted to do. I didn't play any other sports. Um, winters the long winters in in Canada when I was you know I didn't you know I didn't play basketball and high school basketball. I didn't play high school football or any of the other sports like I literally even in the winter time I would go home and I would go back and I would go in the garage and and I would like clean my cart and I you know the cart had 150 coats of wax on it by the time the winter was over right you know and I would just like to do just work on my cart and just that's that's what I love to do right there's kind of kids growing up it seems like you're people can be kind of three tiers of competitiveness there's people that are competitive at everything and they get mad at everything that they're not good at some people are just not competitive at all and then there's people who are sort of selectly competitive who this is the thing they want to they're going to get mad if they don't do well but there's other elements of their life they don't really care and it seems like that's more of what you were as a kid yeah i'd agree with that yeah i mean i don't really you know i don't care that i'm not good at other sports or right. Like you were a mediocre goalie in your own words. Yeah, no, I was. I and mean, you're fine I, with that. I wasn't playing on like any AAA team or anything anywhere right. where I was good, or was good enough to get to the NHL or anything. Right. And it um, wasn't like you would, you know, throw a hammer into a wall if you had a bad no, hockey game. It was just it wasn't really my passion. But it, you know, it's something every kid does in Canada that every kid plays hockey. Yeah. So you know, I played baseball, you know, summer baseball. I just I wasn't really into it until I found found go-karting and uh i just that's what i love the most and that's all i thought about was was the go-kart and so i would literally work on it all the time how would you handle criticism when you were you know moving up getting older you're a teenager so your thoughts on the world are quite different than what they are now right and so for me it was like this uh uh, what's the uh, for me it was like this delusion that like oh it's gonna work out you know, and, and there are a lot of stories that don't work out, mm-hmm. you know, but I never believed that. And I, I worked with a couple of mechanics when I was starting out sweeping floors and they're like, oh, you want to be a driver? Like, forget that dream. It's not happening. And nothing ever stopped me from thinking like, oh, it's, no, I'm going to do this. And now I'll talk to kids and they're like, well, I'm never going to make it. So I just might as well give up. And it just never occurred to me. And obviously you seem like the kind of guy that doesn't just give up on something if you believe in it. No, I, I don't give up on things if I believe in it. But time, time, times are so different now. Like, you know, when I was came up racing, you didn't have all these outside influences of of TV stations. I, you know, I believe when I was a kid, we had like six TV stations. You know, there wasn't 600 TV stations. We didn't have internet. We didn't have video games. We didn't have, you know, we had... 
basically screwing around with your friends, going out and riding bo- riding bicycles in the summertime, and going out on your BMX bike and riding around. And in you know in the winter time, we you know when I wasn't playing hockey, you know, and, and we'd play street hockey. You know, we'd go out in the street, and all the kids in the in the neighborhood would get out there, and we'd put a couple of goals in the in the middle of the street, and we'd play street hockey. So you didn't have uh, times are just so so different now for kids. I mean, I think it's so difficult now to make it. And I, you know, I would like to think that the best will, even if they don't have money, will will always still still make it. And and a classic case of that is 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 probably AJ Almadinger. Like he's a he's a kid that I found go kart racing and they don't have any money. His dad his dad's not a rich guy. His dad laid carpet, you know, and they had some crappy cart and I gave him equipment and and you know he was he's a kid that made it on pure talent and no money and people could people recognized his talent and uh, he's still even even through all the you know ups and downs he's had through his career and you know the suspension and you know, getting let go by Penske, and then just, then he came to work for NBC, and I said, I was doing the 24 hours of Daytona with him, and we were doing it from Charlotte, we weren't even at the track, we were, we were doing it from Charlotte, and I said to him, are you gonna race again? He's like, no, man, I'm done, I'm just over it, I'm like, dude, you're not over, you're not done, I said, you're, you're an animal, you're, you're a beast, I mean, you need to find a ride, he's like, no, nah, I don't want to do it anymore. You know, just, I'm just going to do TV. And then he got a, you know, he didn't race for, for quite a while. And then he got a, an opportunity to run the nationwide car. And boom, he won. I was like, and then it, he got another ride. He won again. And that, then he got a, a cup cup ride. And he won a cup race. And and now his career is, is he's in the second phase of his career. And he's, it's taken off. He's killing yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's absolutely killing it right now. That's a great podcast he about that. He finally made it on Dinner with Racer, so yeah, he's finally got yeah. it. Yeah. yeah, you killed it, though. You were way ahead of him. Why would you help A.J. Allmendinger get started? Uh, I just recognized the talent. You know, he's, we went to this track, and I was actually running a couple of other guys. And and uh, we went to this track in Northern California to test, and, and we went up there and he was up there with his dad, and they were in some beat up, crappy pickup truck with a, you know, American made brand card, and the guy was, kid was kicking our ass. Is there a pride behind that now, seeing what he's been able to accomplish? I'm just, I'm just happy for him that he's been able to resurrect his career, not, not throw in the towel. Like he, had, he was at a point there where he kind of threw in the towel and was like, I'm done, you know, I'm, I don't want to race anymore, and I'm just gonna do, have a TV gig. And I said, dude, you're too young. To do that you need to like and he's like no you know and somebody called you know one day somebody called him and i don't know who it was that called him to come do a one-off and he kicked ass yeah you know he's a, he's a, he's a pure talent he's a pure racer pure talent so so back but like for you you recognize this talent in this kid you want to help him out and then years later you become teammates in champ car and he's killing it yeah, is, he is kicked, there a sense of like what did I do? <laughs> no, he kicked my ass. But that's uh, you know I I hadn't had a a really a young you know I had fast teammates my whole career you know when I was you know I was Emerson was my teammate and you know Alan Sir Jr. 
you know, Michael Andretti, these guys are all super fast dudes, right? So, but, you know, Dario was my teammate, all super fast guys. I had quick, quick guys for quite a, a long while as my teammates that could push me to the limit. And then after, when I was with Forsyth, I had, uh, I had a couple years there where, you know, after uh, Patrick Carpentier was my teammate, and he was a pretty quick guy, uh, could win races at, you know, he was special. He was really a specialist at a couple of couple of tracks. He was like super fast at Mid Ohio and 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 Laguna were his, his two tracks where he was tough to beat. But you didn't but, help his career get started, which is kind of what no, I'm asking. Like, no, it, so I I went f through a couple of years there where I didn't really have, you know, somebody that you know I didn't have the measure of. Yeah. And then when uh, he got let go from Russo. Jerry came to me and he's like, hey, should I, you know, help this kid out and pick him up? I said, yeah, he's a great kid. He's super talented. And I thought I'd have the measure of him. <laughs> and he came, he came in and uh, basically the first race destroyed everybody. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, and ironically, it was at Portland was his first IndyCar win, and he just won there last week yeah. in his first NASCAR race there, which is, which is pretty cool. Is that a sign that, okay, I need to, like – keep an eye out for the future here because if this kid can show up in the same equipment and kick my ass like I don't have the rest of my career ahead of me I'm I'm now gonna have to deal with younger kids who are faster well yeah I mean every you're gonna have to deal with that all the time as you're getting as you get older there's gonna be newer younger faster kids that come along and I was at I was the new young fast kid you know I don't think anybody expected me to show up in my first test at Penske and put a half a second on Emerson Fittipaldi at Mid-Ohio in my first test, right? So I'm sure that was an eye-opener to, to Emerson, right? But I, I, would, I would hope that I, that I pushed Emerson to, to, to raise, raise his level up. And that's, that's just that's a fact of dealing, of dealing with getting older, yeah. you know? Let, let's go back to, to young Paul Tracy for, for a minute. Um, Ryan was kind of going there uh, earlier. Was there a point in your go-kart days where you realized this was going from something fun you were doing with your dad to this is going to be my career? Uh, I mean, I didn't, I didn't start thinking about career until after, till I got to after Indie Lights. I mean, I wanted all the to, way I, through. Well, Indy I wanted Lights. to have, I wanted to, obviously, I wanted to have a career right. in racing, but I didn't realize I could, I could really make a career in racing until I was actually signed. To Penske Racing, so it took I, a contract with Penske to tell you you had a career. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I'm not saying I didn't didn't want to have a career, but I yeah. did want to have a career, but I didn't realize it was possible until I actually had a career. I guess <laughs> yeah. does that make any sense? No, <laughs> no, it's a lot of math. You know, but I got you. You're like, yeah, 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 when I got the Yankees contract, I realized I was good at baseball. Well, no, I I knew I knew then that it was very very serious, and I had to perform yeah. all the time. But for so for a lot of kids, you know, they 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 win a nationals in karting or they go out and they run formula Fords and they do well. And they start looking at other people going, yeah, I can beat everybody that I'm with at a junior level. Was that mentality ever with you? Yes and no, because I think, I think I just took, took things like when I was racing go-karts, formula Fords, you know, all the junior formula, I didn't know that I was going to have a, 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 I didn't think about I need to make this my career. I just wanted to win races, and I didn't think I, I didn't have I didn't put the pressure on myself that if I don't win this race, I'm not going to have a career. I just concentrated on I just concentrated on winning yeah. the race. 
So what was the driving force then to move up? To go um, from, from go-karts to then Formula 4s and then to, to ARS, which is now Indy Lights. I mean, I really didn't have any say in it. it, was, it was really so this my, was dad? Yeah, it was my dad that said, okay, well now, you know, we're, from, we're, we're going from 100cc junior go-karts racing, you know, racing around the world and racing in, you know, world championship events. Then, okay, as soon as you get your license, as soon as you're old enough to race a Formula Ford, we're going to go Formula Ford racing. And I actually, my dad, when I was 15, my dad bought bought a, a, a Formula Ford 2000, which was, which was a winged car for me to practice in before I was eligible to race in Formula Ford. So, like, he talked, um, he talked the owner of, of uh, Mosport at that time was a guy named Harvey, I think his name was Harvey Hughes, was, was the owner in the, in the 80s of Mosport. And he had, my dad had done some paint work at the track for him and painted the tower and painted some of the walls and said 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 to him, I say, hey, I'm going to buy my son a car, and can he practice here? Uh, I was only 15 at the time. Can we can we practice? And he said, okay, yeah, no problem. And he just signed this waiver, and if he crashes, then I'm not liable, right? So he, uh, we would literally go out to we we. My dad bought a uh, a Formula Ford 2000 actually off Ron Fellows owned the car and uh you know he was a, he was at that time a struggling open wheel driver and basically he's like i can't i can't afford to run this car i'm gonna stop racing open wheel cars my dad did a deal with him bought the car off of him and then he took that money that he sold that 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 f2000 car for and he bought himself uh, a camaro and they had this the, the players uh IROC championship in Canada and he bought himself a Camaro and started racing in that and that's how his sports car career took off from there so you were single-handedly responsible for Ron Fellows I wouldn't I wouldn't say I was <laughs> single-handedly <laughs> responsible but it's like the it, I'm just saying the parallels of how like I started my first go-kart was bought from Scott Goodyear his dad and then, you know, like my first race car we bought from from Ron Fellows and that that changed the direction of his career that, the, the you know, the direction that he was going, he, he was never going to make it. And then, you know, these these little parallels of the community of racing in Canada is just it changed the direction of people's careers. And, yeah. you know, but the thing I'm hearing is that. There was no excited 11-year-old who wanted to go to Formula One and wanted to advance as much as Tony Tracy saying, all right, well, we're going Formula Fours next. Yeah. I yeah. mean, I, no, I just, don't, don't get me wrong. Certainly that's what I wanted to do, but I didn't realize that I didn't, I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't put the pressure on myself of, you know, I think a lot of kids get wrapped up now in, you know, the pressure of, I need to become an IndyCar driver. And they're thinking about that at eight, nine, 10 years old. And the pressure becomes so great that you don't perform. The pressure that I put on myself was just simply to win, win my next go-kart race or win the next Formula Ford race or win the next F2000 race. I didn't have this preconceived notion that if I don't win this race, then I'm not going to be an IndyCar driver in 10 years from now. I didn't think I didn't think that way. I just thought in the moment of this this weekend right now, this practice session, I need to be 
fastest. I wasn't thinking about, well, what, what happens if I'm not fastest in this session? Is that going to affect me ever getting to an Indy car or a Formula One car? Do you think your dad did? Uh, I don't know. No. My dad was obviously put a lot of, didn't put a ton of pressure on me to, to, to compete well, but he always wanted me to do, to, to get better and not become stagnant. So even, even, even if I won a race, he, he could find something where I could do better. And this was clearly you know? a passion of his yeah. as and well. I, you know, and that's, that's, that's coaching too, yeah. right? Yeah. It's not, it's not being a bad dad or being a negative dad or, you yeah. know, like a coach, a coach can take, you know, can take a Michael Jordan and say, look, you're, you know, okay, you scored 48 points this game, but right. you missed this shot and you missed that shot. You could have scored 52. Right. 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 So, you know, you can always make room to improve, yeah. you know. Where's mom and all this? Uh, my mom was like, you know, she was not super, super keen on my racing starting out. She was always worried I was going to get hurt. Uh, you know, she didn't like my mom is a, is a, is an accountant and she was did all the accounting for my dad and taxes and and all that kind of stuff so she didn't like the money that was being spent yeah, yeah for sure, numbers, sure. Yeah. so she's yeah. seeing all the numbers that are you know buying engines and buying go-karts and going yeah. to europe and, and i wanted to, we wanted to go to europe uh, i'd had had two kind of struggling mediocre years in indy lights where the first year we started, we did a team and, uh, you know, we ran out of this lawnmower repair shop. Yeah. Well, and, and Indy Lights at the time had a, let's just call it a spectrum of mm -hmm. quality teams and equipment compared to today where most of the teams are running the same stuff. Yeah. It's like a spec chassis. Spec yeah. Engine. Yeah. <clears throat> so the first year I ran, I ran, uh, Indy Lights, I ran with Kerry Agapu which is a guy out of out of LA and his brother was is and I didn't even realize this at the time until I watched the the movie Ford versus Ferrari like oh right I didn't you know I was I'm not a real historian I wasn't a historian when I was a teenager right. of what was going on <laughs> yeah, so yeah. Kerry Agapu had a team and my dad did a deal with Kerry Agapu to run this team and uh for us and we ran out of a lawnmower shop in 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 uh brownsburg indiana right across the street from from the drag strip yeah. it was literally across the street and uh we had like you know 800 square feet in the back of this lawnmower shop that, that this guy let us rent a space and have a couple toolboxes there to run so, the step right beneath indycar yeah yeah right <laughs> so okay, it, was, clear. it was it was <laughs> it was me it was myself living down there and Kerry agapu didn't live there he lived in in los angeles and the guy running the team there was an english kid that was there Long story short, we had a couple of struggling years in 88. I won my first race in uh, in 88 in Indy Lights at Phoenix. I was actually driving for Hemelgarn Racing. Oh, cool. So 89, I'm, uh, 89 was when we started our own team that was in the back of this back of this lawnmower shop with Kerry Agapu. And then that just didn't, it didn't go very well at all. So then my dad said, okay, well, we're going to go to Europe. I, I got a test to to go run F3000, F3000, and that test went really well, but I didn't get the ride. And then my dad did a deal with uh, Brian Stewart for me to run with, with Tom Kristoff with Lanford Racing. And, uh, you know, we put the money together, and Lanford paid for some of it, and my dad paid for some of it, and my dad got some money from some paint suppliers that Sherman Williams was, was, 
was our sponsor for when I was in Indy Lights and and I, that was it. I won the championship in '90, and that's when that's when everything took off. Coming up through racing, there was uh, people expected you if you were going to get the ride. People expected you to be fast in five laps. They, you, there was none of this. Oh, we're going to give you a year to develop, or we're going to give you you know, you know, if you got an opportunity to test, then you better be fast. Otherwise, they're going to look for the next guy. So, and I don't know if that was pressure from, from my dad, you know, we would go places and you'd go walk the track and you were expected to be on the pace and in, in literally in, in a few laps. And if you weren't, then there's something wrong with you, you know, and that's just the way it was. I mean, and I didn't, uh, I didn't get the concept of when I, I would hear people say when they would do a transition from from an indie car to a stock car well it's going to take him two to three years to get up to speed you know i didn't understand that because you can't yeah you yeah. can't you can't yeah. have that you do your uh your indie car test for true sports and you're under the impression you have to be up to speed in five laps and you did a good job of the test mm -hmm. and then eventually that leads to doing a one-off race with your dad funding it in indycar right well we 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 went to you know did the test at mid ohio had a great test the season ended um you know, they started pitching Budweiser for me to yeah. be driving the car. They were also pitching the Canadian side of the, you know, Budweiser mm -hmm. was distributed in Canada by, I believe at the time, by Molson. So yeah. they were, there was all these pitches going on, and I was still pretty young. I, I don't believe I was over 21. Now, the drinking age in Canada was 19, but in, the, in America it's 21, and it just, there was just, just like, ah, he's too young, yeah. you know. Yeah. I get it, he's fast, but he's just. We need a, they wanted an established guy and, mm -hmm. you know, they ended up, they ended up going with, uh, well, they had Scott Pruitt there. Boisel was, was filling in for Scott Pruitt while he was injured. And then they wanted to do a two car, a two car team. And they ended up just staying with a one car team with Scott Pruitt. So they're, they're not a thing now, but test drivers in those days when it was pretty unlimited mm -hmm. were a real thing. Where does that call even come to become Roger Penske's test driver as a guy with very little IndyCar experience? Well, it just it, it just came from a fact of you know, you know, Rick, Rick and Emerson just they were flat out busy with other with sponsor commitments and and races. Sure. And testing was unlimited; you could test as much as you want. And I, you know, I I I think Penske's philosophy, it, you know, wasn't that Rick and Emerson didn't want to test. But, you know, the last thing you want to do is race on a Sunday all day and have a whole race weekend and then test test on Monday, Tuesday. Sure. So you know, the, you, yeah, you, you, just get, you just get burned out. And you're so, talking about two superstars that can probably demand, I don't want to do that on a Monday and a Tuesday. Yeah. So I think, he, I think Penske, you know, was ahead of the times at that point and say, I, you know, I'm not going to burn out my drivers mm -hmm. testing. I'm gonna hire some. I'm gonna hire this young guy, young guy who's the up and comer. And if he if he pans out, <laughs> then I've got a guy that that can. You know, these Emerson and Rick were not. They weren't young guys anymore. They were in their they were in their mid forties at but that point. At that time, there is Mike Groff or Jimmy Vassar. Like, why Paul Tracy getting the phone call? Well, we we've kind of skimmed right past Dale, the Dale Coin deal. So I didn't I didn't get the I didn't get the deal with True Sports, and we had nothing nothing going on there was no phone call from Penske mm -hmm. 
uh, there wasn't like there wasn't like anybody beating down my door right. to put me in an indie car. So my dad refinanced our house against my mom's wishes for me to run an indie car race. And you know, <laughs> I I had won at Long Beach in the lights car, and uh, that was you know in terms of street racing, it was at the beginning of the year. Um, we decided, my dad decided that that was the, one of the most prestigious races to be in, you know, the biggest, one of the biggest street races. So yeah. my dad did a deal with Dale for me to drive his car. We paid, you know, paid like a hundred grand or something to, to run the car. And, and, you know, it was a year old car. It wasn't, right. you know, it was, this was in ni- 91. And, and Dale Coin at that time was very much the Dale Coin of IndyCar. <laughs> I think I think Dale was at that time trying to improve the team, you know, because he, you know, he wasn't running like, you know, Dale was at at times in the in the 80s was running, you know, like normally Just aspirated customer deals. Yeah, yeah, normally yeah. aspirated stock block motors with, you know, three or four or five year old cars. Mm-hmm. And, you know, right. This 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 effort was, uh, you know, it was a 19 it, it was 1991 when I did the race, and I was in a 1990, you know, Lola with a Cosworth that he had bought I think he bought the car from Foyt so I mean it was a proper car and you know and he dad. was he was still a small team mm-hmm. with only a few guys yeah. and your dad can't fund a season of IndyCar no, racing no, for was, you but he recognizes that my kid's a, a month away from irrelevance yeah and so we've got to put you in something to remind people that you exist yeah and so literally for one race in Long Beach in a year old car in a team that didn't have the reputation for running top results they say we're just going to put it all on black and and they say exactly. i was just going to say the same thing it's like yeah. walking up to the roulette wheel and putting a hundred grand on black and, and spin it and drop the ball yeah. and let's in you know maybe maybe my dad's philosophy was maybe if we you know finish good we can right. make some prize money and impress mm-hmm. somebody and, yeah. and have enough money to go to the next race yeah and then you, you went know? out and won the race no i didn't uh, i didn't oh. win the race <laughs> that was that didn't happen at all Should have bet on red yeah, yeah. <laughs> wait so how'd it go uh, I had good practice sessions. Uh, was competitive. Off to a wow, bad start with that, that comment. That is a uh, press practice release. Practice was great. Yeah. 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 I've written. Yeah, I've written those press releases. I was fastest in sector one. Practice was no, great. No, I, I believe, you know, people, people, knew it, people knew at that time that Dale's t- team wasn't a top-tier team. Yeah. So, you know, for, you know, a 20-year-old kid to jump in a car and, and be, I, I can't remember the, where I ended up in practice, but to be 11th or 12th, in that car and then qualify I think I qualified around there like a 12th 13th and then I people were like they must have been wow that's pretty impressive right so because you know I went out in the race and immediately you know 10 laps into the race I think a water pipe broke and I lost all the water and the motor overheated and and I was done it was over parked on the back side of the track and I was literally walking back to the paddock I was walking around the not uh, the the uh, hockey arena mm-hmm. in the center of the track. Yeah, yeah. So I was walking around the arena and I ran into Mark Smith, who was my teammate in Indy Lights, and we were sitting there on the curb, and he was like, oh, "Man, you were doing awesome, blah blah blah." And I'm like, "What what are you gonna do now?" And I'm like, "I don't know what what I'm gonna do now. We're I, we're done. We don't have any more money." Yeah. And I'm like, "Oh man, that sucks." And, and your then, dad's just mortgaged his house. Yeah. 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 That's yeah, it. so yeah, that's it. as I'm sitting there, uh, Dan Lugenbuehl, who was one of Roger's, you know, chief executive 
guys in, in Detroit Diesel and Penske Corporation, he rode up on, on a scooter and uh, stopped, looked at me and stopped. And then he, sa he, he said, Paul, Roger wants you to come over to the trailer after the race. And I'm like, okay. I'm like, what time? Uh, you know, I'd be in a couple. Come over in Why? a couple hours. I'd, yeah, I thought it was. <laughs> I, I thought it was in trouble did or something. I, did right. I cause a yellow? <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Did I do something wrong? Right. Like, so I drunk because you're yellow. Yeah. I don't even think my dad. I don't remember. I don't recall if my dad was even at Long Beach at that race. Sounds like <laughs> sounds like it might have helped. Yeah. 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 He's like, I'll do the kid a favor. I'll stay home. Yeah. Yeah. So I went over to the trailer after the race, and I, you know, I went in in the hauler and went in in the trailer with Roger and and. Dan Luganbuehl was there, and a couple other couple other people that I, I don't recall who was who was there. And, and Roger said, "Hey, you, get, you did a good job this weekend. You know, what do you want to do?" I said, "Well, you know, I want to be an IndyCar driver. I want to win win IndyCar races." And he's like, "What's your plan now?" And I said, "Why, well, you know, we're gonna Dale wants me to run at the Indy 500, and so we're gonna try to find the money to run at the 500." And he said, "Well, just." Wait a couple of weeks. I'm going to give you a call in a couple of weeks. So, but don't do anything. Don't sign any contracts to do anything. Just wait. You know, I'll call you. In, I'll yeah. call you in a couple of weeks. What's your number? What's your dad's number? Yeah. Yeah. Roger Penske says, "Hold on." Yeah. You hold on. Yeah. So we didn't. We couldn't find the money to run at, yeah. at Indianapolis. We, sure. You know, we that was a much more significant amount of budget than running at yeah, Long Beach. You know, now so you're talking run time and you know, you know. you're talking three hundred thousand dollars to run yeah. the the month of May. So, so the phone didn't ring for in a couple of weeks. Oh you know? okay. And then practice and went on for a at, week. At Indy. At Indy. Yeah. And then Rick qualified on the pole at Indy and then literally <laughs> at six o'clock or seven o'clock at night. This is nineteen ninety one. Ninety one, yeah. yeah. Six o'clock at night, you know, the phone rings, and it was Penske called my dad on our house phone, and he's like, "Hey, can you come to a what?" Yeah, I, I've never yeah. heard of this. Yeah, yeah. 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 What, what is it? The house phone. Yeah, there was that? no cell phones back in those days. <laughs> right. So he says Hello? to my he says to my dad, "Can you guys come to Detroit tonight?" And meet me in my office from Toronto. From Toronto. Okay, not the, not the hardest thing it in the world. It can to get, be done. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That was a four-hour drive. From, yeah, and you didn't need from, a passport. Yeah. And it's 7 o'clock at night. Yeah. So yeah. My, my dad said, what time do you want us there? He said, meet me in my office at like midnight. Oh. Yeah. So Like we, that night? Yeah, that yeah, night. Not like tomorrow morning. Yeah. That night, yeah. yeah. Okay. And then Vassar so, hung up. He's like, he bought it. <laughs> he bought it. He's going to drive to Detroit. <laughs> yeah. So we drive to Detroit and we meet. We go to Detroit Diesel and go through the you know the security gate to get at in midnight at midnight yeah. in the factory. And some guy leads us on a golf course to, you know, Rogers. You know, the the office part of Detroit Diesel. And we go in and it, it was me, my dad, and it was uh, Roger and Walt Zarnicky was there. And uh, Roger was like, "I want uh, I want your son to do some testing for me." And I'm going to sign him to a five-year contract. And here, here's the contract. And uh, if you don't want to sign this, then, uh, you know, I got another driver I'm, that's waiting to sign it. So there's, there's no lawyers involved. My dad's not a lawyer, you know. But my dad's not dumb either. He's, he's done business and knows contracts. And, 
you know, my dad skimmed through the contract real quick and said, okay, well, we signed it, and and that was it. How much money was it? It was not a lot. <laughs> How much yeah. was it? My first year with 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 Roger was uh, it was five years. It went twenty five grand, fifty grand, seventy five grand, hundred grand, one hundred and twenty five thousand, and there was like no no prize money percentage. And I'm guessing they could get that, rid of so. you at any point in this yeah, process. And it was there was no guarantees of anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you're a test driver, and it, you know, you know it. And you're gonna do what we want you to do when we want you to do it, and be available at all times. And there was never, there was never anything in the contract that guaranteed me you're gonna do this race and that yeah, race right. or anything yeah. like that. It's just I was under a contract to Penske. What do you think uh, Rick Mears is making at that point? Probably, probably two to three million. I <laughs> yeah. would think. Man, we need tobacco. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thanks, uh, Ma, bro. <laughs> uh, so. Uh, other side of that and i know this shows up later in your story but wait sorry to interrupt yeah at what point was your dad like we couldn't have done this tomorrow morning over breakfast <laughs> like this wasn't know. like yeah. we need you tomorrow at the speedway no we were, i like that we this were is, happy to happy to be there well this is like the penske way like <laughs> i want to do it now we're doing it now you know like this just seems like the penske so way <laughs> but, but you, you see this uh sometimes with sort of parent managers in sports and entertainment where the opportunity of a lifetime is in front of them you know you have to take it but if a parent has groomed you for the entirety of your life, there is a little bit of, I'm now giving up control of my kid. Um, and sometimes the parent can get in their own way doing that process. Uh, was this the case with your dad? No, because he, he knew, he knew that my, that this was my shot to be in the best car and the best equipment. Yeah. Regardless of whether I wasn't getting paid anything at all. I, I didn't get into it. I didn't get into it to, to get paid. I just wanted to be an IndyCar yeah. driver. But this isn't about money. You know, this is about dad giving up. Yeah. Like you're not Mike. Yeah, this is no longer Mike. Yeah, yeah, he's giving away his son. Yeah, I don't think my dad thought thought that way. You okay. Know? Yeah, I don't think I don't think he I don't think you really thought that way. Okay. I mean, were you able to renegotiate if things went well with Penske or was that no, it? No, no, that's the what you sign is what you sign. No shit. Yeah. Cuz so, 5 years later you are Paul Tracy IndyCar guy. Well, like not not even 3 years later was I was full driving full time and won 5 races and my dad my dad actually went back and asked, "Hey, can we? Can we? Uh, Paul's doing pretty good. You know, think we can get a raise?" And he, Roger, was like, "Nope. <laughs> you signed the deal. That's yeah, the deal. Yeah, that you signed at midnight. <laughs> yeah, when four you, hours yeah, earlier for no yeah. reason. Um, you do well enough that you get Penske's eye. You get this five-year deal. You're a tester. And then 1992 hits, and Rick Mears has a pretty big crash at Indy." And this sort of sets the trajectory for you. Well, for the first race I did with the 91, I broke my leg. I thought I was finished. Yeah. So my first, literally my first, I did my first test with Penske as at Mid-Ohio. My second test is at Michigan and run really well there and do a 500-mile simulation like an engine test for Mm -hmm. them. And they're like, okay, we're going to run you at Michigan. Because in those days, you could literally run 500-mile yeah. tests. Yeah. So. No big deal. Yeah. Literally, a mo- like a month into my deal with Penske, I'm, I'm going to run at Michigan. In a race. Mm-hmm. It's just like a third car just because mm-hmm. they can. It's local. It's his area. Yeah, he owned the track. Yeah. He owned the Michigan track. We had a whole designated test team that were my crew guys that would strictly they they weren't on the road guys for the race teams they were like test team guys so we go and do the race and qualified well and 
and the race starts and I crashed on lap two or three and broke my leg. And what were your specific instructions for this race as a test <laughs> don't, driver? Don't, don't pass anybody and just chill out until the end of the race. Just ride, ride around. So in a 500-mile race, go fin 400 fin miles. Yeah, finish the race. You know, it's basically. And lap two. Yeah, lap two, I crash <laughs> and broke my leg. Solid debut. Yeah. It was not a solid <laughs> debut. And I was like, uh, I'm, we're done. Yeah. You know, I'm laying in the hospital at, 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 at Jackson, Michigan, you know, lo local hospital. And I've got a broken leg. It's like, and I, I need surgery on it. So they had to transport me from from Jackson Hospital to Indianapolis. And it wasn't by helicopter. We drove in a car with a broken leg after that, <laughs> you know, because it wasn't life-threatening break. So um, one, you know, one person showed up from the team after the race. It was actually Dan Luganbuehl showed up, and he came and said, well, that was a disappointing start. Well, get better. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Somebody like, may call you. Yeah. Is that her? Yeah. Good. Yeah, get better. And uh, had surgery in Indianapolis, and I stayed in Indianapolis to, like, you know, that Roger wanted me to stay in Indianapolis and uh, do, you know, physical rehabilitation in Indianapolis. So basically I got the surgery on my leg. My leg was in a cast, and I would literally go to this uh, – Dr. Trammell had this rehabilitation center – and I would go there and train during the day and lift weights and do do stuff that I could could do without my leg, you know, without doing anything on my leg. And and that's when I actually met Tommy Kendall. Was the first time I met Tommy because he was he was in the physical rehabilitation place after he'd smashed his legs up in the GTP cart yeah. at uh, Watkins Glen. So I you know I was there I was there for like three weeks. It's like that scene in Days of Thunder with yeah. the wheelchairs. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, yeah. So I met. I, I, I was there and he was there and we would just would talk during the day while I was there for like three or four hours. And yeah. That's when we became friends. Young PT, young Tommy Kendall. Yep. Who was the smartest guy in the room? Uh, Trammell. Th those were, di those were different, different times. Trammell was the smartest guy in the room for sure. <laughs> so you win the Indy Lights championship and nothing happens. You think your career is over. You test for true sports. Goes Okay doesn't happen you think your career is over you blow up an engine in dale coin doesn't happen you think your career is over you crash in michigan on lap two with ferpensky you think your career is over how many times did your career end lots. the first few years yeah lots because i had the press was press was particularly tough on me remember that mattered yeah, yeah like you'd pick up the <laughs> you'd pick up a newspaper and it was like Tracy, Tracy crashed again, and how long is Roger Penske going to keep him around? And right. the, the press was not particularly kind, kind on me uh, a lot. So I was always, I always felt like I was under pressure to keep my job at Penske. I always, I, I always felt a bit of a fish out of water there. Right. Well, and, and in fairness, it seems like you might have been, especially early on. And I think I think I was in general, yeah. you know, because Roger was at that time was known for hiring superstar drivers. He had, yeah. you know, Emerson, he had Rick, he had Danny Sullivan, you know, Alan Sir Jr., the Uncers, you know, Mark Donahue. And then there's this 
Canadian fat Canadian kid with glasses, right? So I never I never felt like I was I felt like a square peg that was trying to be jammed into this round hole. I never I never felt like I was belonged maybe. Yeah, absolutely. And I was I always felt like I was trying to prove that I was good enough to be there. Yeah. And that's why I always drove I mean, I always drove the car as fast as I could possibly drive it cuz I wanted to to people to know look, I'm faster than everybody. I may not be, you know, I may not be good looking or I may not be Hollywood Danny Sullivan or, you know, Rocket Rick Mears or, you know, the Brazilian Formula One world champion, but, I, you know, I'm faster than these guys. Yeah. You know? Because it's your only thing you can have. It's the only thing I can hang on to. Yeah. Is what, how fast I can go, you know, that's, that's what's keeping me here, you and, know? And so, Penske, especially in the 1980s, was built on Rick Mears, mm-hmm. the IndyCar team. I mean, all the Indy wins, uh, so much of that team's success leading into the 1990s was Rick Mears, who in 1992, after breaking his legs in, in practice at Indy, decides he's done at the end of the year. And now this is put onto you. And those are huge shoes to fill. Yeah. Or I should say flip-flops. Yeah. I knew that I had to, to win races, and I'd been challenging to already before I was full-time like in 92 when I filled in for Rick I was a front runner I'd finished on the podium uh, qualified up front raced well Um, so when when I finally got the opportunity to be full season in 93 I I knew that you know I was going to be I I had to win a race that year and you know, season didn't start off very well. Um, the second race of the series was Phoenix, and I was I was leading by two laps at, at Phoenix and crashed on my own trying to lap a car. And you know, again, like the the immediate thought to me was, <laughs> I'm I'm, I'm going to lose my job yeah. over this. Yeah. You know, if I, I you know I need to make something happen. Yeah. Next week, I need to win. Because Penske know? is not a development program. Yeah. It is a team and, where and, you win. And I, I would say, you know, that I put more pressure. I put more pressure on myself to win than, than I believe I put more pressure on myself to win than, than anybody else put on me. You know, I never felt a ton of pressure to, you know, there's pressure to, to win when you're signed to a team like Penske. I never directly felt any pressure from, say, a Roger or 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 an engineer or the crew, but I but I knew that I I I knew that I had to win I had to win races. So the pressure there was the, the pressure came from myself. But no one ever sat you down and said, "If you wreck again, you're done." No. Okay. Right. I thought that in my head. Yeah. You know, well, you you crash on a two lap lead. That yeah. yeah. That's that's a scary moment. Yeah. I thought that in my head. Right. If you know. It was never physically told to me, but, you know, I, I certainly thought it. I certainly thought it was being thought, you know. Wait, who was it that you were trying to lap? It was Jimmy Vassar. God damn it, Vassar. And I believe he finished on the podium, too. <laughs> he knew I what he was doing. The, the yellow helped him out. Yeah, yeah <laughs> I, th- got I, the think, mileage. I think I was lap- lapping him for, like, the fifth time. <laughs> That's how Indy car racing was different in those days. Sounds there wasn't, like there no. wasn't like the whole field on the lead lap, and mm-hmm. it was like, you know, you handling it woes were, 
you know, pretty predominant pretty then. Yeah. Yeah. Tires fell off really bad, and if you didn't have your, if you didn't hit your setup right, you you could be really house yeah. and struggle. Mm-hmm. And uh, so you got a you got a week to kill between Long Beach and Phoenix. You decided to blow off some steam. Yeah, I, I left Phoenix. We I drove to 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 L.A. with a friend of mine, a guy named Mike Berg, that raced Atlantic cars at the time. Stayed at his house. Uh, Mark Smith was was with us, and they were like, "Hey, I, we know this. You know, we know this guy who's the Tony or you know, the Cali Kart importer, and let's go out to the track and go run some carts on on Tuesday and have some fun and just relax and." So we went out, the three of us, to the track, and Mark and I were out racing around with each other, and you know things got competitive, and we were, we ended up tangling up with each other on the straightaway, and and I <laughs> wait, <laughs> wait, on the straightaway. Well, the end of the straightaway, going into going into a corner. Okay. You know, we were trying to pass each other, and we got into. You ever been to Adams? I have. I run nationals, right? Yeah. Yeah. So you go down the straightaway, yeah. and at the end of the straightaway, you got that big bowl turn. Yeah, yeah. Bank. Yeah. So you know, it was a fast corner, and we went in there side by side and touched wheels, and the next thing you know, I'm you know going over top of them and flipping the card end over end in my racing suit. Like in your Penske suit? Yeah. I still have it here. It's got blood all over it. No, it's got it's got the it's got the scrape marks on it. I yeah. can show it to you later. Yeah. So I flipped the card end over end, and it's you know it's got you know I didn't have gloves on. I was driving the go kart with no gloves. You know, once slid on the pavement with my hands out like this, and like just basically took all the skin off my hands and my elbows and my shoulder. And and so you show up at Long Beach having just blown your win yeah. seven days, five yeah. days earlier, horrifically. Yeah. Yeah, I'm like, oh my god, I'm gonna get fired. Yeah, because there's no skin this. on you, right? Yeah, what exactly. am I gonna What am I gonna say? Yeah, you now right. have no skin in the game. Yeah, yeah. So I told I told the team that you know team manager, like, oh my god, what the, the hell happened to you? I was like, oh, I was mountain biking and we were on a downhill and I wiped out and, and I'm a liar. Yeah, thanks for the job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, I mean, won won the race. You know, I had qualified on on the. I don't know if I was on the pole. I might have, I was, could have been second to uh, Mansell, but won the race. And uh, I, you know, I believe that after winning that race, that I felt a lot more safer within the team. Mm-hmm. You know, because winning that race is a is a big deal, and that's a big event. So and it was a convincing win. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It wasn't just some lucky strategy that got you there. You were the guy out front. Yeah, and then after that, I was I was running up front all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, there was a good possibility of two or three wins. Mid Ohio was another one in the middle of the season, or it's towards the end of the season where, you know, I was super pissed off before the start of the race about something that was said to me. And and uh, what was it? Well, it came, it came down. I was fighting my way back into the championship, and uh, Emerson was 10 points. For, I don't know how many he was, but he was close to Mansell mm-hmm. in the championship, and I was about 25 back. But I had closed the gap from, like, 75 back, and now sure. I'm, I'm, I'm in, in the championship hunt with, like, three or four races to go. And I was on the pole at Mid-Ohio, and, and Mansell was second. Emerson was third. And... On the grid, I'm, I'm, you know, Penske says to me, he's like, look, if we're, if, if we're one, two at the end of the race for the championship, you know, Emerson, if you're in front, Emerson's going to go by and for, for the championship so we can close the gap. And I was like, 
I'm in the championship. I'm thinking to myself, I'm in the championship yeah. too. I didn't say anything. Yeah. I was just so bummed. Yeah. And pissed off at the same time. And I was like mad as hell. When the race started, I'm like, I'm going to build up such a fucking lead that I'm, you know, if they, if they call me to, to, to like let Emerson go by at the end of the race, if we're one, two, I'm going to be so far in front of them. I'm going to have to stop on the side of the track and wait for him. Yeah. Make a point. Yeah. Yeah. So the race starts and I take off and I am literally driving like my hair is on fire. Like I'm qualified, qualifying, lapping every single lap. Mm -hmm. And I built up like a 30 second lead in the first 10 laps. <laughs> right. And I, the first car that I came up to lap at that point was, was, uh, was Scott Pruitt. And we were back in the back of the back of the track yeah. in the S's back there. And before you come up over the hill and I came up over, what do they call it? Thunder, Thunder Valley. Thunder Valley. Yeah. I came up over Thunder Valley and I'm wide open and like just head down, just going balls out. And he's just, in the middle of Thunder Valley, and I came up on him so quick, and I just was like, and yeah. I lost the rear and went went into the into the into the gravel trap and got stuck in there. Yeah. So that was that was that. You know, <laughs> that was the end of your career again. Yeah, um, yeah I got I fired. Yeah, <laughs> that sort of sets a tone where you may not agree with this, but your reputation in those early days, Penske '93 to you know '97 minus one year. Um, you were sort of a non-championship checkers or wreckers kind of guy. You would do well, you would win races, but then you would also wreck. Yeah, but I was um, also I was like this guy that this this square peg that they were trying to jam into this round. They were trying to jam me into this round hole with a hammer, and I just did. I, you know, again, I, like I, again, I didn't feel like I fit. I never got the sense that I ever fit in 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 their that their environment. Now, Roger, you know, Roger and the team and the engineers knew, you know, that when they were building their own chassis, that when Paul gets in the car, there's, you're going to see every, that that's as fast as the car is going to go. So then, you know, they liked. You're always a good litmus test yeah, for a lap time. Yes. That was, but, they, yeah. they liked that fact that, okay, we but, know exactly how fast this car is because that's as fast as it's going to go. Yeah. And we either need to make it better or make it make it more reliable. Because if if there's a weak link on this car, Paul's gonna exploit it, right? So in 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 that era of Indy cars, you know, things were changing rapidly. By the end of '97, which was a mixed year for Penske, they make some big changes. Al Jr. is no longer part of the program, and neither are you. So how how did that go down? In what years? The end of '97. The end of '97. When you when you go from Penske to Green, I'm just trying to get the backstory and how did that go down? Uh, I mean, there's. I just basically I I went and did a test with Penske in in '97, and we ran a uh, one of Ray Hall's cars. We went to this track in Michigan called Gingerman Raceway, and we went and ran there. and And I ran for a couple of days with the Penske and doing a tire test and throwing t tires at it nonstop. And, you know, a truck showed up on the second day with uh, one of Ray Hall's trucks, and then a brand-new Raynard rolled out of it, and they told me, okay, lunch break, you're going to pour, we're going to pour a seat in this car, and then you're going to try that car. And, uh, you know, my 
second run in the car, I did a warm up run for a couple laps and my second run in the car, I went like three tenths quicker than I'd run in two days on a very developed car. Yeah. 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 On a car that I've been already running for yeah, three you days. Know it right. so well. Yeah. I was, and I was like, Whoa, holy yeah. balls. Yeah. You know, like what am I, what am I missing out on here? So yeah. No kidding. The season wound, wound down. And I, that year, I think I, I think I finished third in the championship in 97 and won three races in 97. And I remember Roger calling me to the hospitality unit at Laguna Seca. And, uh, you know, there was a bunch of, you know, the top brass were in there, you know, the lawyers and the, and all that and engineers. And, and he said, what do you think we should do next year? And I said, why? I mean, I think we should get a Reynard, you know, and Firestones. Because we tested a set of Firestones as well, and I mean, they were they were quicker than the Goodyears. And they were like, "Okay, uh, we're gonna call you in a couple weeks. Uh, we're gonna start testing in a couple weeks. So, you know, wait wait to hear from us." So and I you left. Have a contract? Yeah, I had, a, I had three more years on my contract okay. to go. And in in two in a couple weeks, I got a call. I got a phone call from my manager, and he said, "Hey, uh, Roger wants us to." come to san diego and meet meet up and have lunch and with with some sponsors but he says i don't it seemed, seemed kind of weird to me something didn't sound right to me on the phone so they want you to fly over here right now and i was living here in phoenix so i flew from here to san diego on the next flight on southwest and literally walked in this hotel and went up to a went up to a room and a suite and got my walking papers from from one of penske's attorneys and that was that was that. I was out. Yeah. Roger wasn't there. Nope, nope. Roger wasn't was there. Was there ever uh, an explanation? Ah, uh, they just basically said, "Look, you told our you told our team and our engineers and yeah, our sponsors, you didn't want to run our car. You wanted Reynard, so we're going to let you go do that. You know, you go yeah. go. You should go drive Reynard. You don't believe in the Penske. <laughs> yeah, you don't yeah. believe in our. You know, we're committed to our our chassis and our sponsors, Goodyear and and you. You know, you you said you don't you you think you should. We should have a Reynard and Firestones, and you know, you, you should go, go look for that. You're a square peg. You should go be with a square hole. So that was that. Yeah. How quickly do you get in touch with the next team? The first, the first team I actually called was Forsyth uh -huh. hmm. to try to get it because he had actually approached me about wanting to drive for him, and uh, and uh, I just I was under contract. Yeah, and he had, he. Had, you know, asked me in 97, hey, when's your contract? Uh, would you come drive for me? I got players, Canadian sponsor, because he was partners at that time with when they won the championship with Barry Green and Forsyth with mm -hmm. Jacques Villeneuve. Mm -hmm. You know, they he was partners with Barry. And then they had split, and he had, uh, you know, retained the, the player sponsorship. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And they were they were keen to have me drive for them and so that i was approached by them in 97 to come drive for them and i said i was under contract and uh the, so the first phone call i made was to forsyth and i remember it he's i called him up and he answered the phone i'm like hey jerry uh i'm uh, you know you still interested in me driving for you i'm i'm, I'm available and he's like i just signed carpentier <laughs> two days ago i just signed him to a Two year, two year deal. I'm yeah. sorry. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry. I'm sorry. Hey, so, <laughs> the next phone call was to uh, was to Team Green, and was to Barry Green, 
and uh, they only had a one-car program. And, you know, he said, well, let me make some calls, and let me call Honda, and let me call um, Cool. And at that, that, at that time, the guy who was running Cool Cigarettes uh, was, was a Canadian guy named Bob Bexon. And he was he was a big fan of mine. He ran the players program, but also ran the cool program. They were they weren't really a joint program, but the cool and players were owned by the same tobacco company. So ultimately, that deal got put together in the span of 24 hours. Holy I had shit. a new contract to really? drive to drive for cool. What what paid better the Penske contract prior? The Penske, the Penske contract paid a lot better. Yeah, yeah, I was making a lot more money. Was that because and you were coming basically last second? I was, yeah, I was hand. coming last second, and I had no, I had no leverage. Yeah, right. <laughs> now right. I'm a guy who's fired and has no job, so yeah. I didn't have any leverage. Mm -hmm. You know, I can't, I can't complain about what what they paid me, but sure. it, was, it was literally half of what I was making. Mm -hmm. But I was, ha I was just happy to get a, a long term yeah. contract. I got a three year deal to drive for Cool. The first year with Cool was a struggle. I mean, now I got this. I've got a Honda, and I've got a Raynard, and I've got. I've got fire Firestone tires, and I just I, I couldn't hit my ass with both hands for some reason. <laughs> you know, I really struggled, and yeah. I, I couldn't understand why. And then I started overdriving, and you know, trying to make something happen with a car that wasn't handling the way I was used to. I had a it was a tr a tough transition for me from the for whatever reason I just couldn't seem to get. And you had a teammate that was really strong. Yeah, Dario was super strong. Yeah, as it was his second year, and he was super fast, yeah. and I was so that was. Uh, and he know. was gorgeous. Yeah. Yeah, you get lost in his eyes. You can't focus on data. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I get yeah. it. Yeah. yeah. So it was it was a tough a tough year for me in in ninety ninety Didn't go over. It didn't go the way I wanted it to at all. Right. And so we're gonna we're gonna because we we yeah. we do want to not get too caught up in biography. Um, so <laughs> even though I did it. Um, <laughs> Uh, so the, the the cool program and Team Green has its run for you, and that that goes for basically the second half of your your champ car career until yep. that team decides it's over. Yeah, and they don't they now want to participate in the rival series. And you, I don't I never got the full story. Were you not part of that transition, or did you choose not? to I be? chose not to be. Okay, you know, they wanted me to go because you know the, the team. Then uh, you know we went to the O2 500. Obviously, we all know what happened at, at that event. We're not talking about that. Yeah. Um, Barry Green, you know, after that, I think I think that that took a lot of his passion out of out of wanting to be a team owner. Hmm. The Indy 500. Yeah, he he decided to sell the team to Michael Andretti. Yeah. After that, after the O2 season, so yeah. Michael was now going to be the majority owner of the team, mm -hmm. along with Barry's brother, yeah. was going to be the minority owner of the team. Uh, my connection to the team was was Barry. Um, Michael was my teammate, and not that I, I didn't get along with Michael at that point. We had been teammates at Newman Haas, uh, not got along really great there. But you know, at team when we were at Team Green together, we got along fine. But mm -hmm. after the O2 Indy 500, when they decided that the team was going to leave Cart and go into the IRL and race ovals and high bank ovals full time. And now there's going to be no more Long Beach. There's going to be no more Toronto, no more Vancouver, you know, no more Surfer's Paradise, all the tracks that I loved, 
to race at. And they're like, you know, we want you to come race the 7-Eleven car, right. you know, in the IRL. In Kansas. At, at, after <laughs> after what happened at the Indy 500. I'm like, no, yeah. I'm not doing yeah. that. No yeah. way. You know, I have no interest in not racing in Canada and not racing in yeah. Long Beach to go race around in Iowa. Know, high, high bank ovals. <laughs> yeah, right. You know? So I stayed, I stayed in, I stayed in cart and, and then I, uh, did the deal with Forsyth. Wasn't that, that was when you came up with the crap wagon <laughs> Yeah, phrase? well, those cars were crappy. <laughs> they were horrible cars back then. Yeah, that became like a whole thing. Yeah, yeah. There was like a website yeah. and shirts and. Yeah, know. they were, I mean, to me, the, uh, it, during that era from 90, you know, 96 till about 2003 i mean you had a beast of a car with 900 horsepower fast fun to drive competitive racing and then when the irl started you had this you know kind of dumbed down you know normally aspirated low horsepower car racing on high banked ovals and it was you know the car couldn't even get around a road course you know, it was a purpose-built oval car. I just, it just didn't seem that appealing to me. It was big. It was a big, heavy, kind of ugly car. And I mean, you look back at those, the era of IndyCar back in the late '90s, early 2000s. Those cars were like for real. You know, I still, I still think that era of IndyCar is still the prettiest IndyCars that, that 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 there were. Yeah, the 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 painting that's over your office, over your desk, is like you look at that car and you're like, man. Like that was it. Yeah. That was it. Yeah. Um, so that that then leads to your your time with Forsyth, who was kind of the one of the last major players in yeah. Champ Car through <laughs> Champ Car's kind of closing years. Um, in my head, and I don't know if this is true, these had to be some of the more fun years for you in terms of like you're now by far one of the biggest, if not the biggest, personality of the series. You're with, you know, one of the top one or two teams. And uh, certainly you had your, your fights with, with Bourdais, but, but much of the eyes were on you throughout those last few years. And I, at that time, I finally felt like I was the, I was the team leader of the team. I wasn't yeah. this square peg yeah. trying to be right. sh- changed into a different shape to yeah. fit a mold of what they wanted. I, a I, maple I, peg yeah, in I a maple knew, hole. Yeah, I knew that the sponsor loved me and wanted me. I knew that the guy who was run, running... Paint, writing the check for the whole thing was a huge fan of mine. Yeah. You know, Forsyth believed in me. He he said to me, who do you want as your engineer? Who do you want as your crew chief? I'll hire anybody you want. So basically let me hire, you know, put together my hand, hand-picked team. And so I knew, I just felt like this is, I'm the, I'm the leader of this thing. I'm not just an afterthought. I find I finally felt like I f- that I fit into a program like this is my program. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and everybody's on everybody's everybody's pulling in the same direction that I want to pull in. Yeah. Right. They're not yeah. telling me no. You need to do this. You know. No. We want you to do this. No. You're not going to say that. This is the prepared statement. <laughs> right. Yeah. You're, now you're going to wear let, a Luchador they, mask. Yeah. They let me be yeah. be myself and let me have fun and let me do things the way I wanted to do it and and I thrived I thrived in that environment and it was also at a time where maybe champ car was very much struggling and so you seem to be the one person invested in the pr side of it yeah um so you were not afraid of the stunts and the the, the masks and all the the, the weird shit that you did for a couple of years yeah it was just having having fun with all of it you know i was just 
I was winning races and I was making lots of money and I was having fun and wasn't afraid of making enemies and that was that was probably the high the highlight of my my career was those those years at Forsyth in oh two in in oh three four five six and I I really I really really enjoyed driving for for Jerry but ultimately at the end he got you know he just things went everything went sideways with he had partners and in champ car with you know that and you can say they all started they all started pulling in different directions and he just got out of the sport i wanted to end i wanted to end my open wheel career with with jerry and finish driving with him and then you know he just decided to bow out of the sport completely and disappear never never to be seen again you know and i that i felt that was one of the you know big shames of not shames but one of the things that was I think it could have gone I think things could have been a lot better at the end basically IRL and Champ Car merge but it's more like an IRL kind of takes it all takeover, over takeover yeah and a hostile takeover <laughs> is um, what it was but but Forsyth just didn't want anything to do with this and this effectively kind of closes the majority of your career it did yeah, yeah. I mean it basically kind of ended my end of my full time career yeah because I never raced I never raced full time again yeah from when it happened in 07 I I I never I never did more than two or three races a year yeah. after that. If a reasonable IndyCar team had called you, would you have considered it? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I would have preferred preferred to stay with with Forsyth for sure. and, and continue yeah, yeah. and I felt that I felt that we could have been, you know, contenders. Right. You know, now that it was turning back, it was basically turning into into cart again. Yeah. You know, they adopted all the good races from from CART, the Long Beaches and the Torontos. And so it was basically, it was a reunion of going back. You know, you were going to have some ovals and some high-speed ovals, but you were going to have all the, be- all the best tracks that we went to. So it was going to be CART all over again. And I, you know, I wanted to continue and finish my career with Forsyth, but it, he, did, he just, for whatever reason, didn't want any part of it. What is the rumor you hate the most? <laughs> the rumor I hate about the most you. About yeah. You. What's the story people tell about you that's not true? Oh, that guy's an asshole. No, nah, that's, that's a no. complete that's fact. That. Mm. Wait till you see the final edit. All right, uh, we're not going to be here for an hour here. But there's when we talk to your, when we talk to Lisa, when we talk to your friends, Pat the Hat, everyone says there's one trigger. There's one specific trigger, which is O2. Yeah, Indy 500. Um, you know, we don't need to linger on this for 30 minutes, but, uh, what's, what's the part of the story that bothers you the most? The part of the story that bothers me most about the, about the O2 Indy 500 is just the fact that it's, it's just being, it's actively being hidden from the public eye, you know? How, how do you mean? They, they, it's not to be talked about. It's not to be highlighted. It's not to be shown. It's not to be so. Like if they're showing Helios four wins, somehow the 2002 win is just glossed over. It's not even there. They don't even show it. Yeah. You know. Why is that? I don't know. You tell me. I'm I'm asking the same questions. Why is that? Why is the most controversial, closest finish in history not talked about? Yeah. You know. And you, you emphatically believe you've won this race. I, I do. I do know that I was ahead of Helio b- 
before the yellow light came on. 100%. Now, did I, I didn't win in in the court. You know, I, I didn't. I won on the racetrack, but I didn't win in the courtroom. You know, and at the bottom line is, you know, they they made a judgment, a judgment call, and on a rule book. You know, a rule book page line, and that's the way it is. Will it ever change? No, I don't think it'll ever change. But I I just I know what it I know what it was like to win the Indy 500. Uh, you know, when you get into racing when you're a kid, or you get into any sport as a kid, and you stand out on your driveway and you dream of shooting the the last second shot, the three-pointer, or you dream of, you know, hitting the slap shot with one second to go and putting it in the top corner. And you practice that and you practice that and you practice that over and over as a kid, hoping that someday it'll happen. I I lived through that, coming down to the end of the Indy 500. I'm chasing down the leader. I'm making my move. I'm passing on the outside. You know, I pass. I'm ahead. When the race is over, I I I I I lived through that. What it takes to win, win that race. Mm-hmm. You know, I just don't have I don't have the trophy, and I didn't get the check for it. But I I lived through it. What it what it took. I'm sure if I ask if you're at peace with that, you'll say yes. But when we talk to your friends, when we sit here with you and Lisa. And the month of May comes up, it seems like this still comes up. So I'm not sure that you are. Uh, I just don't want, I don't want my fans, my fans to forget it. You know, mm-hmm. I'm okay with it. I'm a, I, I think I'm, you know, sure it bothers me. It doesn't, you know, I don't get upset about it and go throw, throw things around or get pissed off about it. But, you know, I want my fans to remember that what my story was, my story doesn't change just because somebody else says it's, you know, they have a different opinion. Where do you uh, where do you and Elio stand as uh, in terms of a relationship? We're fine. Yeah. yeah, him and I get along great. You know, and I'm one of I was one of his biggest cheerleaders on on TV, saying how great great he's done. And I mean, you'll see when you see us at I, I don't know if he's doing this race or not at oh, Five Flags. Yeah. I'm not sure. So if we're he's not gonna, gonna we're not, gonna so. not assume either but, way. But uh, him and I, uh, we get along fine. We don't talk about the Indy 500 because there's nothing to talk about. He's you know, he feels he won. I feel that I won, and we can agree to disagree. It doesn't mean I dislike him. Yeah. I don't well, I get the him. impression you don't hold him accountable to the verdict, so to speak. No, no. Yeah. I mean, he was, you know, it was a decision made by the chief steward, and it was all played out in front of this little make makeshift court, and that was the ruling. You know, it's, it's got nothing to do with with him. You know, if I was in his shoes, I'd I'd be the same way. You know, it is what it is. You know, like. You know, that's just the the way it is. I'm not going to, you know, somebody, you know, I've never had it happen in my career where I've won a race because somebody else got, you know, if, whether they got disqualified or, you know, their car was illegal or this or that. But if, you know, so if you won a race and, and you know, you finished second and the first place car came in and it was 10 pounds underweight and they said, okay, you're out, you're the winner, you're going to say, oh, I'm going to give them the trophy <laughs> and I'm going to give them $2 million. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No, it's no. not going to happen. No. Right. Right. So yeah. it is, it is what it is. Yeah. Well, sports cars seem to be $200, but yeah, 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 yeah. I get you. Or a watch. Yeah. We have a few friends that did that um is there a story you wish people knew not a personality type or a part about you is there an actual story you wish more people knew about uh i mean i think i'm i feel i'm pretty open with everything that's gone on in my life i, I feel that i'm a lot you know you know as a, in terms of how 
people are today and how protective they are about what they say and do. And I feel I'm a pretty open book, you know, and I, if, if people ask me a question, I'm willing to answer any question. Whereas I don't think there's a lot of people that are prepared to do that in this, this day and age. Well, I would say that you and I aren't particularly close. You and Sean aren't particularly close, but you've invited us into your house for the last you know couple of days, giving us full access and well, that's that's because I want to call for the 24 hours. <laughs> You're doing it wrong. You're doing, yeah. Like you got to invite Rick Ware in here. Yeah. <laughs> no, and I, I feel like I've always been pretty open. You know, there's been times in my career where I wasn't allowed to be open. You know, my times at Penske, you know, I wasn't allowed to say what I wanted to say. You'd get a PR statement, what was going to be said. But, you know, later on in my career, when I was more established and, you know, PR agents, like like you said, getting a hold of people to get them to do the show when you have to go through the PR agent, it's, you know, I, I always dealt one-on-one -on -one with people. If the media wanted a quote from me, you know, they, they, they came to me. They didn't, they didn't go to the PR, PR person to get a quote. Yeah. And that would drive the PR person crazy, but... Not all of us. You know, but I... I <laughs> Fuck them. I, yeah. I think everybody liked the fact that if somebody came and asked me a question, they'd get what I thought. Whether, whether it was right or wrong, I would give them my honest opinion on things. When you were with Forsyth, which was very much a sort of a very small controlled team, that's when you did the most stunts. Yeah. Uh, was, it, was it because of that that you just sort of had more free reign than you were ever used to? I was just allowed to be, be myself because it was kind of my team. Like, I controlled the team. You know, Forsyth was a business guy and, you know, real flamboyant, you know, super rich billionaire type guy that would, you know, he would fly in on sunday morning for the race so the team was really left left you know to neil micklewright and myself to motivate and get the guys going you know yeah. who was your greatest rival uh i mean that's hard to say because i've had a lot of great ones but it's hard to pick out one guy who was the hardest or the toughest because you know racing against mansell michael Al, Zanardi, yeah. Montoya, yeah. Yeah. you know, Vassar, Bourdais, you know, the list, I mean, the list goes on and on and on. I mean, I raced against Dixon in the beginning of his, beginning of his career, Dario. I mean, look at all the guys that I've raced against. I can't, I can't say one guy was, was better than, better than the rest because they were all brilliant. They were all amazing drivers and they've all accomplished you know, phenomenal things. And I've raced against all these guys and I've raced wheel to wheel with them, banged wheels with all of them. And I can't say one, one guy's better than the other because they're, how can you? Yeah. I'm not asking who's the best driver. I'm asking who was, yeah. who was your favorite rival? Like who, who did you love to hate? Uh, I mean, I had the best banter back and forth with Sebastian. <laughs> yeah. Just simply because he was so French and got, would get so wound up over over it, right? Because he had no yeah, idea what yeah. to do with you. Yeah, so that's yeah. a perfect storm for Paul Tracy. Yeah, like you have no <laughs> there's. So we were with Forsyth, yeah. so there's literally no one holding you back. Yeah, and now you've got this fairly subdued Frenchman, new to the country, new to the culture, and the biggest star in the sport is just being a. Yeah, like yeah. Pe people would have yeah. thought that Montoya and I would not get along with each other because Montoya's personality is probably very similar to me yeah he has no he likes to push people's buttons and say things yeah, yeah. say say whatever he feels is on his mind and right. you know he's always got something smart right to say 
you know, and sarca- sarcastic to say. So people would have thought that him and I would, but we actually but you understand got along. That, right. Yeah, him yeah. and I, him and I actually got along very well yeah. personally. I would say one of you is tying on the shoelaces together, the other one's lighting them on fire. Like, yeah. yeah, you two together would be awesome. You, you, you needed Bourdais to have somewhere to channel your your pokingness. And he was a very well, easy I've always, target. I've always had that in, in, right. in my career. I've, I've always had a rival. Every year there's been a, a different rival. Right. For the, you know, Bourdais was just a longer period of where him, him and I went. like he was pretty easy. We yeah. went head to head for four. And he was really four good. Four years. Yeah. Oh, he was, he was better than I was. <laughs> you know, I'm, I, I can admit that now. I mean, yeah. he's, you know, he's got more wins and he's got more championships than I could have ever dreamed of, yeah. of winning. So, like, he did, you know, he was, he's a phenomenal driver. Get you packed up If it's something that's stuck 